Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. Editor for Alphaville. I am recording right now in our D.C. Bureau, which is why you hear the thunderous sound of jackhammers in the background. We have some year-end business. I'm going to keep this brief. First, after this interview, we're going to take a break. It is not an indeterminate break. It is a very precise break for two weeks. We're just going to sleep in a bit. We will be back on Friday, January 4th. About that, when we come back, we will be back with a new partnership And we will be recording from the American Economic Association's annual meeting. It's in Atlanta this year. And also, if you're at the conference or live in Atlanta, come to our evening event on January 4th. There will be Luigi Zingales and Jason Furman and David Otter and Iwana Marinescu and other economists and also some alpha villains. We will literally be ringing a jargon bell to make sure people speak English. It will happen in a bar. Send us an email to RSVP at events dot ft alphaville at ft dot com now this week alphaville's jemima kelly spoke to mariana mazzucato she's a professor in the economics of innovation and public value at university college london she works on the economics of innovation and argues that states have always played an important role in making new things her new book the value of everything looks at how we define value and again argues that the state creates value too Here's Jemima. Welcome to Alpha Chat, Mariana Mazzucato. It's a pleasure to have you here. On the back of your book, it's written that you are the world's scariest economist. So um, for my inaugural Alpha Chat, I'm hoping um, it's not going to be too scary. <laughs> By the way, it was quite funny because when the Times had that as a headline, it caused all sort of a Twitter storm. And in fact, Robert Peston oh. said, ah, oh, that's sexist. But then we actually thought, no, this is a good thing. People should be scared <laughs> right? Well, I agree. by the message, not by me, but by what I'm saying, which is that capitalism is currently in danger. It's increasing inequality. It's decreasing innovation. We need to rethink things. And that should be relatively scary. But of course, we need solutions. And that's a less scary bit. We need to be full of hope. That's why the last chapter of my book is called The Economics of Hope. Indeed. Yeah, that's no, the that's... unscary bit. Okay, no, I like that. That's That leads us straight into kind of the purpose of the book as you see it. I mean, in some ways, I saw it as a kind of call to action. It's not just a kind of book to stay in the, you know, in the libraries of universities, is it? Do you see it as a kind of, as that? as a kind Yes. Of- so basically, the reason I wrote the book is basically on the back of my previous book, The Entrepreneurial State, which had big success, I would say, amongst policymakers around the world who were really trying to rethink their role in the economy. Uh, The book, the previous book, talked about the role of the public sector, not just in terms of fixing markets, but actively co-creating, co-shaping them, learning from what happened in Silicon Valley, which is basically a story where the public co-created the value by actually investing in a courageous, mission-oriented way in all the technologies which ended up in our iPhones. Internet, GPS, Siri, touchscreen. And the message there was we should be thinking equally boldly 
about the missions that led to those investments, which was basically the space race and the Cold War missions, mm -hmm. around societal missions, missions around the Sustainable Development Goals. And that will require, again, an active state alongside an active private sector, alongside you know civil society organizations that work together. But <laughs> even though that message was interesting and sexy, if you want, and lots of governments were like, wow, this is really interesting. We never thought of our role that way. Mm -hmm. Then what they actually did on the ground in terms of the nitty gritty instruments they implemented, they continued to be problematic in terms of the framing, in terms of how um, you know even business was seen as the wealth creators and then government needed to think of different types of policies that would, alongside the wealth creators, create whether it's the green economy or you know the new digital society. So for me, it was about saying, hold on, some of these policies that you're introducing are not just problematic in and of themselves, but they're problematic in how you frame the problem. Mm -hmm. So value creation and wealth creation seen just in business. And then you there trying to, again, facilitate and enable these interesting things to happen, for example, around the green economy, have to be rethought from kind of ground zero mm -hmm. around value. Why are we so willing to talk about value creation only in business? Mm -hmm. And so to do that, I went back in the history of economic thought um, and so in some ways, the book is very much kind of delving in deep dive into the history of economic thought for 300 to 400 years and asked, where did this concept of value come from? What I argue in the book, the punchline of the new book called The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy, is that we've stopped debating value. Value used to be hotly debated, and I'm sure we'll talk about this mm -hmm. in a minute, and what's happened when it basically has left economics departments and gone only to business schools, and it's no longer the way that economists kind of fight over their ideas and how they then advise policymakers is this concept of value creation has been captured captured by, say, pharmaceutical companies that use the word and how they do their pricing, so value-based pricing, captured in the way that corporate governance structures are done, so shareholder value. And that has led to a situation, I argue, where we are rewarding value extraction over value creation. Why? Because this concept of value creation is incredibly fuzzy, and anyone can call themselves a value creator. Mm -hmm. And I try to explain how that happened. So you've given us a real, like, kind of whirlwind tour actually of, of, of some of the things I think we'll, we'll get into in a bit more detail. Um, and, and you started by talking about how the book led on from the entrepreneurial state and how, you know, governments like were really pleased about this book. And, you know, I guess it made them feel like, cool, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're not just these dull kind of bodies that intervene when we need to intervene. And actually we have some, we, we do have some creative power. But I guess what you're saying is that actually the problem was more fundamental because um, we needed to think about what value means. And so if the government were to be seen or see itself as this kind of value creator, then it needed to know what value actually means. So exactly. maybe we can, because <laughs> the book is called The Value of Everything, maybe we should come back to just the idea of getting a definition of value what's yep. your kind of how do you so define? I purposefully do not give my own definition of value what I talk about is that when you no longer have a contested debate about value where value is no longer the way that arguments happen you know what is value creation what is value extraction a key debate that did exist for example in the times of Adam Smith then we get the problems that I talk about in the book the real core thesis of the book is that how we debated value changed fundamentally. What I argue is that it went from being something that was objective 
tied to how production actually takes place. Think of Adam Smith's whole discussion of the pin factory and the need for division of labor in order to increase efficiency, productivity, um, and that that was central to understanding economic growth, or Karl Marx and his understanding of the labor theory of value. So both of them paying a lot of attention to technological change, division of labor, how work was actually structured, uh, the effect of machinery and automation on wages and profits, something that, by the way, we're all debating today around mm. the whole problem of will the robots take our jobs. Mm -hmm. um, they were already debating that back then. But this, this notion that value was determined by the investments that were actually made in the production structure, not just about manufacturing. I mean, this could be very modern today in terms of you know new types of services, but that it was objective, again, to the modern day where we have, instead of an objective notion of value, again, objective tied to what's actually happening in the real economy, to a subjective one, meaning that it's driven by basically value being in the eyes of the beholder. So value driven by preferences. So economic theory, uh, Econ 101 classes, which are based on a framework called neoclassical economics, which began in sort of the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, replaced this focus on objectivity to one focused on preferences so that even workers' wages, instead of being tied to the class struggle that Marx talked about, were all of a sudden tied to preferences mm. that workers had of work over leisure. And the price system itself, prices being determined by supply and demand curves, so by the market, were seen as, in fact, revealing value. So instead of having a situation like in the classicals where you had theories of value determining theories of price, you ended up having a theory of price, this is what we have today, theories of price, which determine what we think is valuable. Mm -hmm. So in fact, what we include in GDP is stripped of any sort of value judgment. It's just based on things that actually have prices. So this is why when anyone teaches you know, undergrad uh, economics, the first thing we tell them about GDP is, hey, isn't it interesting that uh, if you marry your uh, cleaner, the GDP goes down because all of a sudden something that perhaps was being paid for might still be done without <laughs> yeah. payment. Or the opposite, when we pollute, just cleaning up the pollution will cause GDP to go up. And so that has, in fact, caused many economists, so environmental economists in the case of pollution, or feminist economists in the case of these issues around care, to say that GDP has a problem. But what I do in the book is say, look, there's, there's even a more uh, underground problem. It's not just about including in GDP, say, well-being indicators or thinking about the way to include environmental issues, as important as those things are. It's also about making sure we haven't done a huge mistake, which is confuse rents with profits. Right. So in the classical economist, rent was basically unearned income. It was just moving something around and charging for it without actually creating anything new, any good that was new, so a new thing, or any service that was new, or any new production structure, just moving things around, charging for it. And they called that rent. Today, what's interesting is we still talk about rent seeking, but rent is seen more as just a temporary barrier due to some sort of imperfect competition mm -hmm. issue, which can, can actually be competed away. And the problem is that because we put into GDP anything that has a, a legal price, then we don't actually ask ourselves, well, does that thing, think of for example, lots of areas within financial intermediation, so the creation of you know credit default swaps and the whole hedge fund and private equity industry, yeah. is that actually creating value or is it just literally moving things around and charging prices for it? 
and I'm always struck how many people don't realize this, even economists. That's why up until basically the 1970s, much of what we call today financial intermediation wasn't included in GDP. It really mm. was pretty informally seen as simply a transfer of existing income. So for the same reason that you wouldn't include Social Security payments into GDP, because it's just a transfer of existing funds from one place to another, you wouldn't include financial intermediation because it was seen as just moving funds from one place to another until that whole area began mm. to grow massively. Right. And the standard accounting agencies in the UN said, oh, we have a problem. And they ended up giving a name to this area called financial intermediation in terms of what it was actually producing as either risk-taking, if it was the uh, investment banks, or basically different types of financial intermediation uh, for the, the uh, commercial banks, so producing new types of uh, services for the financial sector. And that's just interesting because what wasn't asked was, is the type of finance, whether it's, again, private equity or hedge funds, actually producing something that is of value regardless of whether it's charging right. a price. And is your answer just definitively no, this isn't creating value? Or is it just that we overestimate the value that that sector does produce? So it's definitely not about naming and shaming any part of the economy and saying you're not creating value. That, right. by the way, is what Adam Smith did. He actually right. made a list mm. of um, areas that he thought were important in terms of creating value and ones that he thought were completely irrelevant and thought they weren't important. In the same way, by the way, that the physiocrats before right. him at the time of the, you know, when societies were still agricultural, yeah, you before include, the Industrial Revolution. You include some of these tables in the book. It's one of my favorite chapters of the book is just this run through that you have of the way in which we have conception of value has shifted. And these tables are incredible that, that right. you describe these, these tables. Yeah. So the basically book. the physiocrats, I should sort of back up a minute then, uh, the physiocrats in the agricultural times. So so it, up until the end of the 1700s, mm -hmm. uh, the physiocrats thought that value was basically within farm labor and anything else was really just moving it around. And they right. had a whole, so Kenney had this wonderful tableau economique where he actually showed how value was circulated in the economy. And his main purpose there was to show that when value was actually being siphoned out and not being reinvested back into farm labor, then the economy would basically fall apart because all right. the value was actually created there. The classical economists, so Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Marx, as I mentioned before, in basically labor and production. And actually those that came before the physiocrats who were the mercantilists in exchange, they really believed that the terms right. of trade and exchange rates were really important. So the Navigation Acts of that time, I think it was 1651, were really important because they believed, as Trump does today. I was about to say. Yeah, Trump <laughs> has brought us echo. back, brought back, us back 400 years, yeah. yeah, where everything that matters, you know, that's why he thinks about walls, the wall, right. or why you know terms of trade is really pissed off with Canada and Mexico, et cetera. He thinks that that really, really matters as opposed to, you know, again, thinking about how we can really transform um, investment so that there's more public, private, and again, other types of actors investment in these key areas which determine productivity and competitiveness in the U.S. That's actually under threat today. And what's interesting is China has learned the lesson from the entrepreneurial state and is, in fact, financing that kind of investor first resort uh, role that the U.S. government played with the IT revolution. China's playing with the Green Revolution. Do you think the United States and the Britain should have sovereign wealth funds? There was, a, there was an interesting piece about this on Medium, you know, about the, the left shouldn't want a sovereign wealth fund, that it, that it creates another layer of kind of, you know, rather than going from straight from X to Y, you've kind of created another intermediary layer and that, that, that um, it's kind of inefficient to have a... Interesting. So it's not so much about sovereign wealth funds or other types of funds. It's if you are going to have these active 
public investments, which, you know, the BBC, of course, was critical to that also in the in the uh, UK. If we want that kind of investor first resort yeah. uh, role, the question is, should the public sector then not just fund things, but also get back some equity, right. get back something to go into a public fund? And the answer to that is it depends what we're talking about. Um, you know, when Tesla receives a $465 million guaranteed loan, mm-hmm. very high risk area, which might also lead to failure. The same amount of money went to Solyndra, which did fail, still in the government's portfolio. Was it naive that the U.S. government didn't retain any equity in right. Tesla, given that any venture capitalist will also tell you it's normal to have failure. For each success, mm-hmm. it's normal yeah. to have five or six failures. But what VC guys do is they, and gals, they retain <laughs> equity in the successes in order to finance the or cover the inevitable, inevitable failure. Mm. It's normal when you innovate to fail, but also the next round of investment. So what one might argue is that either a sovereign wealth fund or a public bank, you know, like the KFW in Germany, would re- be able to, for those downstream investments, this isn't about the upstream research that I was talking about before, but these downstream investments into high-risk areas and high-risk companies like Tesla, it's perhaps naive not to retain some of the equity because otherwise you end up socializing risks but privatizing rewards. Right. And But the thing is, it's not just through equity that you might do that. You might also do it through the price system. If you are funding, for example, all these medicines that I argued before, why are the prices of the medicines not reflecting that Mm -hmm. public investment? You could do it through the way you structure the patent system, intellectual property rights, which currently are very badly structured. Patents could be much more narrow uh, and weaker, so to be more easily licensable, that would be a better public return because that would lead to more diffusion. You could get conditions on reinvestment, so there's record-level hoarding of cash mm. in both Europe and the U.S., as well as record-level financialization through things like share buybacks. Yeah. That could actually be something that governments negotiate, which is if you are going to make use of these big public funds, and whether it's in energy, health, or IT, then we could create conditions on reinvestment of those profits back into the real economy rather than allow this hoarding. We don't have those kinds of discussions today with the big monopolists. Right. It's not about public or private. This is one of the things I think Corbyn gets wrong. It's not about nationalizing rail necessarily. Mm. It's about getting new types of relationships, new types of contracts that if you are going to be providing something as important as a transport or water or health, in other words, if the public sector is going to actually outsource some of these contracts, there should be extremely rigid and strict uh, conditions right. based on the investment that these companies must make in mm. terms of improving those services. And if they're not willing to do that, then forget it. You can't get the contract. Instead, what we get is a lot of giveaways. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the public sector, meaning the taxpayer, um, gets hurt. Now, we should also not forget that the tax system itself could be better structured. I think a lot of people don't realize that when NASA, the National Space Agency in the U.S., or DARPA, the funder of the Internet in the mm. Department of Defense, were founded the upper marginal taxation rate was over 90%. Today in the UK, we're debating whether it should be 50 or you know 50% right. or what. At the time, it was over 90%. And so that was also a very different period. And by the way, that was a Republican military president, so General Although that's, Eisenhower. Although that's really interesting, yeah. But then you could also argue that the US was a kind of unrivaled power there. And so therefore in that time and therefore the kind of the risk of budding entrepreneurs or business basically going elsewhere um, would have been lesser. And so I guess it could it wouldn't be able to afford that kind of tax. So so that's a really good point. So there's two issues there. One is, is there any evidence at all that business escapes when tax is too high? 
Um, I mean, obviously, if you have really badly structured taxes, maybe businesses will leave. But the evidence actually shows that business moves, whether we're talking about pharmaceutical companies, IT companies, or energy companies, where they see future growth opportunities. And Mm -hmm. that growth opportunity is not driven by little increments in taxation or, say, interest rates, but by you know, following the investments that have been made in new areas, whether it's nanotech, uh, AI today, uh, different health areas, different areas around energy, where they think that, you know, wow, if we get in first, we're going to make, you know, a killing. So that's the first point. Then, of course, the tax system matters. Uh, But currently what we have is a tax system which rewards short-termism over long-termism. So capital gains tax is way too low. That top marginal taxation rate I was talking about isn't it's not actually that people were paying 91% in right, terms of, yeah. that's just the top, you know, again, yeah, yeah, marginal sure. rate. Yeah. And that often is at such a high level that it's actually not going to really affect what you do because the real issue from a policy side is how do you get profits to be reinvested? It's mm-hmm. not about how do you make profits higher. Right. Right. So profits today, for example, are at record levels. So the profit wage relationship, profits to wages are at very high levels. So there's no point in thinking, oh, let's reduce corporate income tax, because that simply will increase profits, and profits are already high. The real question is, how do you get those profits, which are very high, to be reinvested? Mm -hmm. So is it by um, tinkering with tax? No. In fact, there's all sorts of evidence that by reducing corporate income tax, that just increases the time that say people might go golfing <laughs> or or money that's hoarded, it doesn't actually increase investment in the real econ- economy into new areas, what I call value creation. So then the question is, what does? And it's this kind of you know multitude of different types of uh, policies and investments that governments can make, which really do increase the perceptions of business of where these future areas are. But it also, of course, depends on corporate governance. And one thing I do in the book, The Value of Everything, is look at how the current corporate governance system based on shareholder value is not only problematic for all the reasons we know it is, Yeah, it's also problematic because it's founded on a problematic understanding of value. So shareholder value comes from, uh, first of all, from the 1980s, end of the 1980s, uh, it was actually taught in business schools around the world, and it's based on the idea that shareholders are the biggest risk takers. Mm. And so if you want risk taking in companies, you need to reward the shareholders, and they think they're actually something called the residual claimants. That's the word that's used, which means once everyone else in the company has gotten their guaranteed rate of return, okay, guaranteed meaning you know, if you have a salary as a worker, you're getting that, right? right? It's in your contract. If there's a certain interest rate you have to pay to the bank, the bank will get that. But, the you know, once everyone's been paid their guaranteed rate of return, if there's anything left over, which is called the residual, mm-hmm. the extra thing at the end, then that goes to the shareholder. And so they're risking getting nothing. And the problem is that's simply not true. Right. Workers are taking huge risks often by taking on lower salaries, thinking they have a career in a company, they might get fired. That's a risk. Uh, governments, for every internet that government financed, there's been many different failures. For every uh, Google algorithm that was government financed, there was other algorithms that ended up in failure. So what I do in the book is talk about the need to rethink how we talk about value creation. In this case, for example, the collective risk-taking Uh, the stakeholder, not shareholder, understanding of Mm -hmm. where value Mm -hmm. comes from, and then ask what would that mean then for how we think about the green economy today? What would that mean for how we think about the 21st century welfare state? What does it mean for how we think of regulating the data companies? And one thing I say is, you know, even the word regulation is a problem Mm because it kind of assumes that you're 
intervening right. in something for good or for bad. If you like regulation, then you're intervening for good um, into something that's created in business and you're regulating it to make sure that things kind of go well around today, say privacy mm-hmm. around Facebook. That's a problematic word. What you're actually doing is investing in lots of the underlying technology. The data itself is actually out in the public domain. It's citizens' data. Right. Um, and so what you actually need is governments representing citizens who are actively co-creating and co-shaping that space, yes, through what we think about as rules and regulations, but the the digital economy itself should be seen as an outcome of the stakeholder right. uh, value creation process. And that would mean perhaps asking, should we completely reverse the relationship instead of having all the data end up in you know Google and Facebook and, and Twitter because they're getting the data from how mm-hmm. we set up the systems now, um, and then government having to come in later to worry about issues around privacy, yeah. shouldn't that data go into a public repository, which can be governed by an external body, you know, just like we have advisory boards for all sorts of important things, including the UN, with then strong conditions attached for how the private sector then uses that data, mm. as well as maybe fees attached to it. Instead of currently, we have exactly the opposite logic. Right, the right. data is inside the companies, yeah. even though it's often been on the back of publicly funded technology, like, again, what would Uber be without GPS? Uh, and again, citizens' data themselves, that's actually public data. Mm. The public is always in the back seat and, and trying to catch up. And by the time it's ca- caught up, it's, it's too late. Things have already moved on. Right. Uh, one thing that occurs to me slightly with because with, I think you talk a lot about DARPA and then NASA, obviously, and we've talked a bit about how, you know, that was that was at a time those were set up at a time that the U.S. had a lot of power and a, and a big kind of ad, uh, economic advantage over the rest of the world. But because because when you talk about the state or government, there's a kind of an image of this kind of beneficent state that's going to kind of work towards creating good. value, mm-hmm. work towards mm-hmm. good. Exactly. And so the kind of implication is that we don't necessarily need as in capitalism, you know, we don't, you know, that the state can work towards that without the kind of competition. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but but I guess Hayek's idea, for example, of capitalism is that, you know, we need this competition in order, you know, for us to, to get the most efficient kind of way of each individual working towards, you know, some sort of kind of common good. Does it matter who's in charge of the government or is it just, you know, because mm-hmm. does it work in, in a kind of dictatorship somewhere and um that's exactly why i have now founded at university college london an institute which is actually a department called institute for innovation and public purpose right because it's not enough to say oh the state was important and the it revolution and of course it will be important in the green economy the point is first of all what does that mean for the structure of state institutions what can we learn from the darpa Mm. model in other areas but your bigger question is what is the state actually doing so the first thing i always remind people is the state often does really bad things too, or things that can be contested. Fracking, for example, is very contested. Mm -hmm. That was state funded by Mm -hmm. the U.S. Department Mm -hmm. of Energy. We know, of course, if you want to use the word dictators, that whether it was Hitler or even communist dictators, lots of bad things have happened. So this is never a normative question that the state, by definition, is doing something good. The point is the state can be and has been transformational. Mm -hmm. It's not a backseat player. It's not just fixing markets. It actively co-creates them. Now, what it's creating should be contested in democratic societies through the you know avenues that we have, including through social movements. We just brought in to the Institute also Charlie Ledbetter, who wrote, we think, to, because of his work on movements. Social mm-hmm. movements were behind the, the birth control pill, were behind um, you know the AIDS drugs through the ACT UP movement. The real question that we have is, A, to admit that the state can, when properly structured, be transformational, not just be a backseat player. But then we need democratic institutions 
which actually help guide what is actually invested in. Or you could have a benevolent dictator that just decides we're going to do the green economy. But the real interesting question today is the idea of missions. So you're not giving money to sectors. The government shouldn't be just handing out money to, say, life sciences or to the pet projects of some benevolent uh, politician, but really to capture the demands that we have in society around inequality, around, again, the four challenges the UK government has actually put into the industrial strategy or Mm -hmm. clean growth, future of mobility, Mm -hmm. the aging society, and the data economy. How do you transform those into missions which government can guide Uh, stimulate cross-sectoral investment. So going to the moon required 12 different sectors. But then you actually use government instruments to crowd in bottom-up, the key word here is bottom-up, experimentation, exploration of different projects that need to be done in order to get there, right? Mm. In order to get to the moon, there was lots of different projects, of which many ended up in our phones, as I mentioned. Uh, In order to have a carbon-neutral city, lots of different investments need to be made. These Missions, though, should not be that Kennedy moment where you have one guy saying, this is what we're going to do. We should, as much as possible, be able to listen, have empathy, and harness the movements in civil society, which are demanding for change. Now, that doesn't mean having a referendum on everything. We know that doesn't work. (laughs) But it does mean that it's always this delicate balance between using the state's apparatus to really push change for progress, but who decides, mm. it should be as obviously as democratic as possible. So, you you know, in capitalism, you might have the kind of competition as the motivator in, in the Cold War. Um, winning might have had the war. Winning the war yeah. or not causing a, you know, a nuclear nuclear war. I mean, um, what can motivate the state now? I mean, what, what is the, I mean, like, as you say, green energy, that's not, is that enough of a kind of motivation? So first of all, it shouldn't be green energy. It should be a green becoming, revolution right. across yeah. society, right? Yeah. So that's why I gave the steel example. Yeah. I do think that the two big challenges we have ahead are climate change and automation. Mm-hmm. So how to really um, deal with, you know, automation is, is, is nothing new. There's been mechanization now for t- 200 years. Financialization and that share buyback problem that I mentioned before, where share buybacks are just a symptom of the problem, they're not the only problem, um, kind of stops that reinvestment cycle. So one thing that states should do on that big problem, automation, is to make sure that there's better deals and contracts so that we actually get the kinds of reinvestment in different parts of the economy Um, as opposed to allowing for this hoarding. But what parts of the economy? How do you actually get business to want to invest? That requires a different aspect of what the state needs to do, which is Mm. really to lead the way into those areas that business isn't even seeing right now due to the short-termism. And so forming new types of interesting missions around, again, the green economy, which can then crowd in business investment. But that requires a very different notion of policymaking. It's not about nudging. It's not about facilitating, enabling, or just fixing market failures. It's about seeing uh, public actors as active co-creators of this new 21st century capitalism, which also then feeds back into the kind of uh, confidence that civil servants have in striking those deals that led to that kind of Bell Labs reinvestment. Going on to that confidence thing, it's kind of interesting the way you talk about, you know, I guess the brightest and best aren't really motivated to go into the civil service because it's not a place that we value enough, perhaps, or that values itself enough, maybe even. Yes. Which actually brings me to another question. So you talk a bit about how economics, how there are kind of philosophical and moral and societal assumptions that underlie that. And and in some ways, you know, our economic thinking is just obviously a product of, of our time and and, it, and, it, and that will shift. And, and But we imagine that it's this scientific thing. We've discussed that. Mm. And I wondered whether like, so the book is called The Value of Everything. And but it's actually quite 
nevertheless, it is quite economic-y. And you don't talk a huge amount about value in terms of non-economic value. And so I wondered whether, I mean, it's it's a, it's obviously one of the one of the things that you mention, gender pay, for example, gender pay gap. Mm-hmm. It's obviously quite a topical discussion. But I wonder if we need to to think about non-economic value as well in that kind of a discussion because for example isn't there some value in in spending some time with your kids right so so whether whether you're the mother or the father should there then be if someone who's spent a few several years looking after their children ends up getting paid less over their career is that you know i'm not saying that they should be but it, do we need to think about this do Definitely. we need to think about non and and also like you know i'm a journalist you're 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 an academic and we could both we're both in jobs that that we probably find fulfilling in some ways and 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 a banker is might be earning uh, you know I don't want to talk about you <laughs> a banker I know is earning a lot more than me um and in some ways they maybe they aren't getting the same fulfillment and so so mm-hmm. does the does the value discussion need to be a bit broader is- so that's exactly what I meant when I said before that actually there is a really dynamic and interesting and key important discussion happening precisely on issues around care, which right. you just mentioned, yeah. around how we capture um, metrics for well-being. Mm. Um, and that's happening. And that's been happening for some years. That's why Stiglitz, Vitusi, and Amartya Sen came out with their uh, wonderful little book um, around well-being and the the inability of GDP right. to capture these areas yeah. that don't yeah. have prices to them. And you know, the care example is always the one that everyone gives. Yeah. That's key. But I didn't need to write a book on that because that's no, already yeah. been discussed. There's many books on that. What I try to do is say on top of that, okay. just as important as talking about these areas which are really key that aren't captured well economically mm-hmm. is how the economy, even under its own reasoning, purely economic, has a huge problem because we haven't distinguished properly value creation from value extraction. I don't want to do what Smith and even the physiocrats did, which which was simply to make a list of, you're a value creator, you're a value right. extractor. Adam yes. Smith had a very funny list where even opera singers and <laughs> opera dancers were all really unproductive in his view. You know, they were just not so much extracting value, but just unproductive, not important for value creation. That's not the point. The point is that what we really need is if we have a contested notion of value, if this becomes the way that we also allow policymakers to rethink their policies, then it becomes much harder, actually, for activities that are simply just moving things around to Mm -hmm. argue that they're creating wealth. And they can argue that. They can call themselves wealth creators. Mm -hmm. But then you will have that argument be contested because the topic of value and what I call in the book the production boundary, so this Mm -hmm. notion of productive and unproductive, becomes key to the economic debate. So rather than saying, oh, hedge funds and credit default swaps are just extracting value, one could ask, how can we reform the way that we structure finance? How can we uh, change? Because, you know, everything is constructed. It's all man-made. It's not like these things fell from space. Mm -hmm. Um, In order so that they're really guiding finance more into, you know, again, the real economy, but also new areas that we think are valuable. And what is valuable? Well, that will be contested in society. It's not, again, a dictator that determines what's good. And so that would require making sure that we might have more patient, long-term committed finance. That's why there's a whole debate about public banks. But even with public banks, it's not enough to set one up that could end up getting captured, as it often has been, and just end up lending to companies that want to be saved and have a louder voice, save me, give me some Mm. patient, public, committed, guaranteed finance. It should be, again, this is where this topic of missions is so central, had to guide this collective stakeholder value creation process into key areas, which are not just societally good, like areas around inequality, climate change, et cetera, but also that are talked about 
as being important, whether it's, again, the SDGs, which have been talked about, debated, and signed up to by many different countries, but also within economies. If you are going to have an industrial strategy and you decide that it's important to rebalance the economy and you do want to have a thriving new uh, sort of health sector, well, what kind of health? What does it mean to have a private-public collaboration in a health market? Is it just about you know, de one side de-risking the other in creating a hospital? Or what are the characteristics of the care system that we need? And how to use those characteristics to drive the kind of contracts that we set up for these collaborations? That's where the transport sector has failed in this country, where these collaborations, also in the health sector, with these PFI schemes have failed because they haven't been stringent enough on the characteristics of the final outcome. Mm. And that's where, interestingly, we have a lot to unfortunately learn from these wartime scenarios where they would never have been as naive in wartime scenarios as we have been around creating hospitals mm. or, or privatizing rail because you have to win the war. So what is the war around health? What is the war around the future of mobility, the future of 21st century digital economy? War meaning what's important in terms yeah. of the battle to creating what's good for the people. I know we, we have to leave it there. I mean, those are some very, very interesting um, questions. I think we have a lot of food for thought. And I think what's interesting about the book is just the way that you kind of take the argument away from the traditional government bad, markets good, vice versa argument to like something a lot more kind of nuanced than that. And I would recommend the book to all our readers and listeners. Um, thank you very much, Mariana. Thank you very much. Fine. It's been a pleasure. It has for me too. Thank you.